There's like these very few points in a person's life, including my own, where we have the ability to actually design what we want next. So if you think about it, you, you graduate college, or in my case, you leave. So that, yeah. that's, a, that's a point. I got a little bit of time here. I can think, I can make a choice and design what I want next. Maybe it's, you get fired from a job. So that's a, that's a right. point. Yeah. You know, maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's selling of a business. There's mm-hmm. a lot, there's not very many of them. So in a, in a human's lifespan, there might be three to five of these. But for me, when I got to that place and I'd made some money, kind of got my shit together. I'm like, Hey, this is one of those moments. Like I get to really think about what do I want to go do next? And right. I, I told myself, I just made myself that promise. I'm not going to make any big decisions, no big decisions uh, for 12 months. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to take some time to figure it out. And, and what, what, what's crazy is the number of opportunities that come at you when you when you're not like engaged in the day-to-day of whatever it is you might be in. when you when you're when you sit back a little bit and you right. have some space opportunities just flood at you and for me it was hard to say no i mean i said no to a lot of pretty lucrative things in that first year just because i'd made that promise to myself hi just a quick request if you're listening to this on apple podcasts Please take a minute to write a review and leave us 5 stars on Apple Podcasts because it helps us climb the charts and reach more listeners like yourself. Thank you, Andy, for doing this. And uh, for those of us who don't know you, tell us who you are. That's, that's a very abrupt beginning. Just tell us who <laughs> you are. It's a very big question as well. So today, right. I, I have a couple of companies. I have a software company that I started about seven or eight years ago. I have a coaching practice, so I, I, I am a coach myself, so I do work with businesses and individuals to help them scale, grow. And then we have a coaching practice that we're, we're scaling itself. That's what I do today for the most part. I'm also a father and a husband, and I'm a mountaineer, so I like to climb mountains and right. spend time running. I run a lot. I lift weights a lot. I mean, I'm just incredibly, incredibly active. Yeah. But it wasn't always the case. So I started out in in sales in college. Mm-hmm. I did not. I was not a very good student. I got kicked out of school once for bad grades, and then oh. chose to leave on my own to start to to continue to build a company as I as I, instead of graduating. So that was you know a choice that I made early on. So I've always been an entrepreneur. If you ask me you know, who I am in in general, the two things that I enjoy doing are creating and building. So I like to create something that hasn't been created before. Yeah. And figure out how to build it, how to how to scale it to a level so that it's bigger than it was the day before. So different than art, maybe, but a thought will come in my head. I'll, I'll get after it with from a business process standpoint. I'll figure out how to make it either monetize or impact, and then go scale it and. I like creating and building and creating and building and creating and building. And you are very known for Petra Coach, which I guess is a coaching business, but you said you run two software companies as well. What are those? Started a software company about seven or eight years ago because we couldn't, 
the, the business, the, the coaching practice runs on a methodology, as you said, scaling up. And right. that methodology has a lot of paper in it. Like here's a work tool and you fill it out and the information has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. So when we started the coaching practice, it was like, how the hell are we going to scale this thing with a bunch of paper and Google spreadsheets and Dropbox folders and just all this stuff. Right. And then the companies that we were working with wanted to have some dashboards in place. How do we see where we are and how we're progressing? Mm-hmm. And we couldn't find anything that kind of fit the mold. So we you know, partnered with a, a friend of mine and started just kind of building some stuff. And we ended up with a software company, which about three years ago, we've, we've done a couple of round, round raises with it. But now it's, it runs on its own. It has its own CEO. For many years, it was just me and one other person kind of messing around with it. Right. But today, it's, it's its own business. It's well-funded. It's doing incredibly well. It's in another city. I only uh, work as a board member and advisor at this point inside of that business. I spend 80% of my work time, which is probably twice what most people actually work, working directly in the, in the PetroCoach organization. So it's growing and scaling that practice as well as right. working with other companies. I still do a little bit of that as well. And when you started your software business, were you familiar with coding and stuff? Oh, God. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> no. Again, create and build, create and build. So it's an idea. Literally, I just saw a gap. I think entrepreneurs, people who build things, they have this disease where they walk around the world and they just see gaps. Like you, you walk through a space and you go, you know, wow, that picture is a little crooked or wow, there should have been a window here instead of there or whatever it may be, gap in the marketplace. And we just saw a gap and then just attempted to fill it. And we partnered with somebody who did know coding. Mm. That was kind of the deal. We'll come up with the thought processes. We'll do the sales and marketing and distribution. We need you guys to go do the actual coding and things like that. We did not know anything about that. So they helped, they helped us with that side of it. And we stayed in our lane with what we knew. Yeah, I think 10 years back, it was very rare for somebody to start a software company if you did not know coding. But nowadays, I'm watching a lot of people who are building these tools, especially with no code uh, software tools that allow you to automate things and all. And your story is very interesting. And while I was researching about that, I want to take a step back to your childhood because you took a lot of odd jobs like cutting grass and you said in one interview that you would climb on pine trees and then sell mistletoe. So can you talk to us a bit about those stories of your childhood? Yeah, so I was always the kid that I'm very competitive, by the way. Yeah. So if there was a a contest at school selling candy bars. I was going to figure out how to sell more candy bars than anybody else. I remember a time in school where we sold these little oil lamps. You put oil in them and light them up, whatever they were, four bucks a piece or whatever. Yeah. And I sold a lot of those things. So I was always looking for an angle. I, you know, I've, I've piled my books in the wagon when I was a little, little bitty kid and went door to door selling those. As you said, we used to climb trees and, uh, pull mistletoe out of trees and put in baggies and sell it for a dollar bag door to door as a kid. Always just kind of been a, a bit of a scrapper and figuring out how to, again, just create and build and then monetize something. So it's almost a figure it out type attitude. Did that come from your parents? My parents were divorced very early on. So mm-hmm. I lived with my mother. My father was an entrepreneur. 
multiple businesses. I'm not sure exactly where that came from. Some of it was just wanting to not have to rely on other people for a few dollars to go to the 7-Eleven and get something that I wanted to go get. I wanted to be completely self-sufficient in that regard. So some of it was just figuring out how to have a few bucks in my pocket so I didn't have to ask somebody else for something. And when you went to college, what did you went to college to study? It's a great question. And I was in the beginning, I was a mass communications major. But again, I didn't go to study anything. I went because <laughs> like a good idea and I was not very good at, at it. It wasn't for me. So I, my, my, both of my daughters have, have uh, one's just graduated college. The other one's still in college. They're, you know, 4.0 plus students. Um, wow. Highly, highly intelligent. That is not me. I did not. <laughs> care for authority or somebody telling me where I got to be and what do I got to do. And I sure as hell don't want you to give me something and, and make me read it or do it when mm -hmm. it's not something that I want to read or do. So that, that system did not work well for me. And you took a sales job while you were in college? Oh yeah. Well, I had jobs. Uh, I've, I've never not had a job doing something. I mean, in high yeah. school, I worked in a factory where I'd go clean the toilets there were 400 sewing machines making blue jeans and I would go in there after, after they closed it down and clean the place up and clean the toilets. So I've always had, had something that I went and did, but yeah, in college I was approached, I had a, I had a probably one of the classes that actually was good in college was a class around what was known as personal selling. They basically taught you how to sell. And I remember we had a professor, her name was Katie Kemp. And I liked that class. We got to get up in front of the class and sell stuff and learn sales techniques. And it was like, uh, this is some shit that's actually helpful. So this is awesome. Yeah. Was that and a very practical class? I don't think very many people, I, don't, I remember the class being pretty small. There wasn't a whole lot of people in there. But she told somebody else, hey, I got this guy in my class. It might be good at sales. You're looking for a salesperson. You might want to talk to him. Well, this guy oh, called wow. me and asked me to meet him. And I, I said, sure, I'll, I'll be happy to meet you and talk about this job. Well, here I go, I go get all dressed up and he asked <laughs> me to meet him at Hardee's, which is basically like a fast food chain. Okay. And he walks in in his SAE t-shirt and a pair of baggy shorts and here I'm all dressed up. And he, he says, yeah, we have, a, we have a, an opening for a, a sales role. It's 1099, which essentially means you, you only eat what you kill. Like we're not going to pay you anything. If you sell something, then we'll pay you. So that felt good to me. And so I, yeah, I started selling cell phones, cellular telephones okay. back in the day when I was in college as a salesperson. Yeah. That would have been 90, 90, maybe. And at what point did you start your own business and why? Point. So 1993 is when we started the, we, we actually started an aggreg aggregation business prior to that, where we brought together kind of disparate, the cell phone industry back in the day in the US, if you were in one city, you could not buy a cell phone in another city. Okay. So you had to physically go to that city. So if you were in Nashville, you had to go to LA to get an LA phone number for an LA cell phone. Okay. So the first business that we started inside of that, again, I saw a gap. Yeah. But we connected these cities. We basically put together a network and we called it linking the nation or nation link. 
when somebody in Nashville needed a phone because we're in the music industry in Nashville, there's a lot of people go to LA. They want to get a phone for LA. We were able to connect them and get them phones and then generate revenue from the commissions of the sales. Of those. That was the first real kind of business that I actually started. Now I had small little landscape companies or cutting grass companies and stuff like that prior to that. Okay. Uh, that was the first real business. Oh, what about the landscape and the cutting grass companies? When did you start them? Oh, I mean, I was cutting grass on my own from, from the time I could push a lawnmower. <laughs> uh, seven years old, six years old, eight years old. Wow. Uh, it turned it into a company after I went to college for the first time. Hmm. And then they said, hey, you're, you're apparently not really interested in this. We're not going to invite you back, which is, means I got bad grades. <laughs> so I moved back to my hometown at that point. And start and started cutting grass, and I started a little an actual company where I had people work there and stuff like that. So that was that was probably eighty six, eighty seven. And who gave you these lessons in incorporating a company, hiring people, managing those stuff? <laughs> no, no, there was not a there was not a person who said you should do these things. So I, I'm a good example of probably done a hell of a lot more incorrectly than correctly. Right. I was just tenacious enough that when it didn't work, I was going to figure out a way to make it work. Mm. I've read a ton of books. You can see back here. So That's right. <laughs> books are probably my number one education tool after experience. So mm. doing things and doing things either correctly or incorrectly. But I, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to a class somewhere that said, do these things. I didn't go to Nobody showed up and said, this is how you should hire this person. I've gotten that knowledge over the years through reading books, going to seminars, being in workshops. I'm a member of an organization called Entrepreneurs Organization, a global network of entrepreneurs, and there's a lot of education inside of there. Right. So I've gained that knowledge, but there's never been somebody who walked around and held my hand. And can you talk a little bit about the failures that you or saw early in your business career and you learned from them? Yeah, the list is incredibly long. I'll tell you one of the dumbest things I ever did was I built a wireless telecommunications business from 1993 until 2011. I sold it successfully in 2011. I sold it the first time in 1999, hmm. so 93 to 99, and was approached by a group that was going to do a roll-up. So they were going to purchase a lot of different businesses, put them into one, very exciting. I was very excited. And the guy that was putting it together, I, I liked him. I trusted him. He asked, would I help him do the roll-ups? Could he use our company name for the new company? Could we go ahead and start training those other businesses before our business closed? Okay. So we, so we worked for about a year with this individual doing a bunch of work. Like the new company was called Nation League. Our company was called Nation okay. League. We, we gave him the damn name. Yeah. We basically bought into this purchase long before it ever happened. And then when it came time for it to happen, we actually, we went through and sold it. We went through the closing process, but they never paid us. We, we, we sold our business to someone who we worked for for a year who never paid us anything for it. And ultimately we had to claw it back and take it back. Okay. So the, the mistake in that was until the deal is complete. And until the funding has happened, 
don't count on it ever happening. And I've worked with a lot of companies over the years since then, the minute that they get, you know, a letter of intent or an inkling of somebody wants to purchase them, they want to go away from normal practice of scale and growth and doing what they know how to do really well and go work in this thing. And it's really difficult to separate your mind from this kind of excitement of, oh, we're going to sell this thing. And you still got to make sure it's still working all the way up until the day that it's closed and it's funded. So that was the, that was a very big mistake that I made and a very big lesson that I, I learned personally and that I, that I take to other people. It's also in the book. And in one of the interviews, you said that it, that basically that transaction put you $1.5 million in debt. It did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we sold the business. It had about, I don't know, half a million dollars worth of debt on it. They assumed that debt moving forward. When we took it back, it had $1.5 million worth of debt. We assumed that debt bringing it back. So we went a million dollars in reverse, taking that business back. Again, lesson learned. I probably would have done the exact same thing again because I knew what I had in my team and I knew what I had in my client base and in my vendors and partners and in my market. So I I knew I was going to be able to, well, at least I thought I was going to be able to turn it around and make it better than it was before. And it took a lot of work to get that done. And how long was the process of the turnaround? Two years. It took about two years to, and some of that was, was driven by, I mean, this is 1999, the dot-com bubble had bursted. The <laughs> bank industry was, in, was freaking out. We were told, because we assumed that note back, I told the bank immediately, hey, we're going to be outside of our covenants of this loan on day one. Like, I'll sign whatever you want me to sign. I'm just telling you, we're going to be outside of covenants on this loan day one. And the person that I was dealing with said, no big deal. I got you. I understand the situation. Two weeks later, this guy's not even at the bank anymore. And we get moved into special assets, which means I got some joker showing up in my office every three months to review all my stuff from somewhere I don't even know. He's just doing his job. I get it, but he's kind of a pain in my ass at that point. But so, yeah, it took a little longer than I thought it should have taken. Some of it due to that situation with the bank and the things that we had to do. Some of it due to people kind of freaking out about dot-com bust and what they're going to do in their businesses. And some of it was us. We just had to figure out how to run businesses better. And I wasn't really good at that in the beginning. And I got better at it. I'm always improving still, but I got better at it over time. Hmm. You said that your idea was of your idea of building a business was to scale it and then sell it and then make a lot of money. And once you went through that process of turning around the company, you realized that one could make money while you are building your business as well. So could you uh, tell us a, a bit about that? that thought process? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you for reading the book, by the way. <laughs> apparently, apparently you have. So I told that story. I sold the business. I got no money. So right. like literally I had to put my house up as collateral to be able to take this business back. Right. Which I, it didn't bother me because I can, I mean, I know eventually I'm going to claw my way out of anything, Yeah. but it bothered my wife a lot. So she didn't, she was, she's a worrier. So she worried really heavily for a couple of years. So lesson learned. That was 2000-ish. We sold the business again in 2011. What I learned was I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to put everything I have into my business and then count on it being the windfall that, you know, comes along. If it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, I'm going to figure out how to build wealth using my business as a tool to do it. 
making it highly profitable. So it throws off a lot of cash so that you can take the cash out of the business. So you can have different investments. So you can, in our case, we bought, bought and, well, actually built a commercial building structure. We built that and we moved into it and the business paid rent for it. So we built wealth okay. by using the business as a tool to do it. So that when I sold it the second time, somebody asked me, what do you, what do you need to get for the business? And I said, you know, zero, I don't, I don't need to get anything for it because mm. I, I've done what I needed to do over the last decade. I could sell it for zero and I'll be fine. And that was kind of a, a little bit of a joke because they're like, but that doesn't make any sense. Well, if you, if you build your business in a way so that you can build wealth with your business, as opposed to just putting everything into it and counting that it's going to pay you one day. And that may happen too. I got some, I got a pretty good payday at the end of the sale of that business, but I wasn't counting on it. And because I got burned so badly the first time, I wasn't going to go through that again. Hmm. And how big was the business when you sold it in terms of oh, number we had of about, employees? Um, we had about 40 or so team members, something like that. And you started that business with your wife, with your now wife. And yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It was and not so, my wife at the time, but yeah. Yeah. And so, how was that process of growing revenues when only two people were there in the early days of the business and maybe you were selling pagers? And so how long did it take for you to crack those sales, do those deals, and then sort of start to scale that business in the early years yeah. or months? Yeah, so that, and that's an interesting thought process. So personally, I've never, I've never myself been around a business that wasn't profitable from very, very early on, if not day one. Wow. Now, I, I work with a lot of companies that have runways and investments and our software business did some round raises. So it's like this burn rate kind of thought process. And I can't wrap my head around that. I grew up, you know, I, I, again, I didn't go to college for an MBA. Like, I, I don't think that way. I think it costs this, we sell it for this. This is what it costs to do it. And this is what's left over. We're going to go make some profit on this thing. So that's just the way my mind works. So mm. for paging day one, I mean, where we, there, I mean, there wasn't enough to make a living on day one, but certainly day one, there was profit. Wow. And we knew the paging business was interesting because it was the shift for me personally from, uh, uh, selling time for money. So this, this kind of do work, get paid, do work, get paid, sell a contract, get paid for it, project, get paid for it to, I'm going to sell you this one little thing and you're going to pay me month over month over month over month. So this MRR right. annual recurring revenue kind of thought process where you can take little pieces and build, you know, software business does this all the right. time. Yeah. The traditional industry type stuff doesn't do that. But for mm. me, that was like, Hey, you mean, I can build a monthly recurring revenue organization, a business that pays me while I'm sleeping. I want that. Right. So that's from that moment on, every single business component I've ever been involved in has had that, except for one wow. bad investment. Yeah. And I read something interesting. You said that once you sold your business, your idea was to not take a single decision for the next one year. What was that about? I think, and, and I, get, I get asked a lot about that, mostly from people that, either sell a business or they have a career change or something's happened. There's, there's like these very few points in a person's life, including my own, where we have the ability to actually design what we want next. So if you think about it, you, you graduate college or in my case you leave. So that, yeah. that's a 
point. I got a little bit of time here. I can think I can make a choice and design what I want next. Maybe it's you get fired from a job. So that's a that's a right. point. Yeah. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's selling of a business. There's mm-hmm. a lot, there's not very many of them. So in a in a human's lifespan, there might be three to five of these. But for me, when I got to that place and I'd made some money, kind of got my shit together, I'm like, hey this is one of those moments. Like I get to really think about what do I want to go do next? And I I told myself, I just made myself that promise. I'm not going to make any big decisions, no big decisions uh, for 12 months. And then I'm going to take some time and figure it out. And and what's crazy is the number of opportunities that come at you when you when you're not like engaged in the day to day of whatever it is you might be in. when you when you're when you sit back a little bit and you right. have some space opportunities just flood at you and for me it was hard to say no i mean i said no to a lot of pretty lucrative things in that first year just because i'd made that promise to myself and what was your first decision after those 12 months man, you got tough questions man <laughs> when you're talking about 2012. So that's a long time ago. Oh yeah. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the first thing that comes to mind is, is the, the practice of coaching. Like how do I build an organization? That would probably have been the first like decision I needed to go make hmm. was can, can I build an actual practice from what I know and then what the methodologies that I've learned can that be turned into something that's not just me trading time for money? That was a question I needed to begin pondering. And I worked on that for a couple of years before it got started, before it wow. got going. Yeah. So what did you do in those couple of years? Basically figured out how to make something repeatable and scalable. Mm-hmm. So think about the, the, if you play sports at all, there's, there's, there's playbooks and then there's methodologies with coaching. A coach coaches one way and other coaches coaches a different right. way and other co- coaches a different way. It's the same damn sport, but yeah. different coaches do it completely different. Yeah. Well, if we were going to have a, a, a repeatable approach to something, repeatable meaning it could be scaled, we needed to take all of those coaches who are teaching coaching differently, even though many times the playbook's very similar, and make them do it kind of the same way. I mean, the sport is exactly the same. Business is business. You may sell something completely different. You may manufacture something completely different. You're, you may be remote. You may not be like this. There's variables. The right. playing field may be different, but the sport of business is the same. So that's what we spent two years doing. When I say we, I mean me. It was pretty much me by myself. Ultimately, picking up, I had an intern for a little while. And then first, first team member was about a year and a half in maybe. Yeah. But figuring out how to systematize it so it could be um, rec- repeatable and scalable. And how many coaches do you have now at PetroCoach? Between here and London, they're 15, 14, 15 probably. Okay. And what are the common problems that you are brought in for? Yeah. So the first one that we solve would be alignment. So clarity and understand uh, let me let me describe it this way if you've ever put together you read my book so you probably know the answer to this question yeah if you've put a puzzle together 
first thing that you do, whether you or not, the first thing you do is look at the puzzle box. You look right. at, hey, this is what it's supposed to look like. And then you put the pieces together. That's what we do essentially. And that's what we, that's what we do for businesses to get alignment. So right. we help the leadership of the organization paint the picture that's going to be on the puzzle box. And we do that with targets, which are numbers and metrics and measurables. And then what we call initiatives and capabilities, which are usually statements of what something's supposed to look like in the future. But we right. paint that puzzle box so that the person working in the business has alignment to, hey, this is what I need to get done. And it has alignment to what my puzzle box is supposed to look like. So that's number one. Number two would be calm the chaos. So usually leadership or leader that we work with um, has two things happening. They're really, really frustrated or they're really, really fearful. Like they show up to work, nothing's getting done the way it's supposed to get done. Stuff's broken all the time. All they do is put out fires. People are banging on like, it's just frustration constantly. Or they're fearful, which means they, they see where they could be if they could just get it together to get there. So they're fearful they're going to miss this opportunity if they don't get this thing together. Mm. So that's chaos for them. So we calm that chaos through the work that we do. And there's you know a hundred other things. But if you think of it in terms of an align, alignment, getting everybody aligned around what, what needs to happen, and right. then calming down this chaos for leadership so that they can work on the business instead of working in the business constantly, mm. those two things in balance make a big difference. Something interesting that I came across was your process of talking to founders and asking them the values of those com- their companies. And then you ask them to tell stories that would describe their values. And uh, I cannot help but think that there must be some stories where some founders might have said that XYZ is the value of my company. And then they tell a story and you are writing down keywords on a chart and you come across this realization that their actual value might be something different. So are there stories as such where you have helped founders discover their actual values or actual purpose? Yes. And probably the biggest, so we worked with a healthcare company at one time. Yeah. And what the healthcare company did was essentially, are you familiar familiar with Kelly Blue Book? You know, Kelly, Kelly Blue Book is, it's a little handbook that car salespeople carry around. And it basically says, oh, you have a, 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 you have a 2014 Corolla and it's four-door. And they can open it up and go, well, that's, this, that's what it's worth. So it tells you the true worth of a car, Kelly Blue Book. So this founder, the company was called Healthcare Blue Book. And their entire business model was to expose what something should cost in healthcare. Like if you go to the doctor in the U.S. and you say, I need my, my Achilles tendon is ruptured. How much does that cost me to fix? And they're like, I don't know. I, I mean, insurance, I don't know. I don't know what it costs. Like nobody knows. They, have all, they aggregate all this data and can tell you this is the average cost, what it should be. This is the highest rated doctor. Here's the highest rated hospital. If you go at this time, it can, you can get it done for this amount. And we're talking through why this company exists, like getting to their core purpose. And they're bouncing around all these stupid marketing ideas around. I mean, it was just like marketing speak, marketing speak, marketing speak. So I turned to the founder whose name is Jeff. And I said, Jeff, why did you start this company? And he tells a story. 
my son broke his ankle. This guy, this guy, Jeff is a doctor and a JD. So he's a, he's a, he's a lawyer and a doctor. Super, okay. super smart. Yeah. Medical doctor, lawyer. He said, I took him to the doctor and I'm a doctor, he says. And I went to the doctor, went to the doctor and he said, my son's got a broken ankle. What does that cost? And then he said, nobody could tell me what it costs. He said, it's going to be somewhere between $30,000 and $15,000. And we don't really know, but, and it just irritated him to no, no end that he couldn't figure out what it was right. going to cost him to get his son's ankles fixed, ankle fixed. Mm-hmm. So this like thought process of exposing the true cost of healthcare to the world being right. the purpose of why he started the organization. But it comes usually from the founder, not from a group of people they're having input because they want it to be pretty. And your purpose is not always a marketing slogan. Sometimes right. it's a rally cry. And wow. if enough people are pissed off about what, is it, what does it cost to get this done in healthcare, then they'll get behind your product or service because you're exposing the, co- the true cost of healthcare to the world as a, right. as a, as a calling. So that's, that's, an, you know, a thought, that's a story around where that can happen. And so say you've uncovered the purpose of the company, how do you align all the team members to work towards that common goal? Well, you have to beat that drum quite a bit and tell stories around it. I, I told you the story of the discovery of it. Right? So it's, then it's, it's exposing it to them, not just as a, a T-shirt or a, right. or a sign on the wall, but what does it truly mean? So Jeff's story had to be told over and over and over and over okay. and over again. And then his story had to become day one onboarding for every new team member the interview process for people coming in. Hey, do you know much about healthcare costs? No, I have no idea. Neither does anybody else. And this is how we're going to fix it. Are you on board with that? Does it irritate you that it, you just ask questions to see if people are drawn to your actual purpose, but keeping it alive, there's tons of things that you can do. And I, and there's some stuff in the book too, that talks about how to keep core purpose and core values alive. And uh, when you hire people for your Petra coach business, who would become coaches in the future, do you take hiring interviews when you're hiring coaches? Yeah, we don't hire. So the number one requirement for a coach to work in our organization is you have to have been an entrepreneur. You have to start a company, worked mm-hmm. in an organization, and then exit it successfully. Preferably, you ran that organization on the same methodology that we now take out to the world. You have to have... It's like, a, it's like a head coach of a professional sports team. You needed to have played the actual sport to be able to coach. So that's like criteria number one, and there's a whole list of other things. Hmm. We, I'll talk to 30 people a year that call me about being a coach. I do talk. I personally vet every single person who wants to be a coach. Maybe three get to the point of discussion around how do you go through the process. Most of them – disqualify themselves when I start talking about, have you owned a company before? No, 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 I haven't. I was the HR director at such and such for 25 years. Well, that makes you a really good HR director. It doesn't make you a really good coach when you have no clue what they're talking about when they're reading a P&L balance sheet and cash flow statement, or no clue what they're talking about when they're talking about inventory control. An entrepreneur, somebody who has started a business, at least has a general knowledge 
of the 360 of business. So I'm not looking for specialists. I'm looking for generalists, specialists. We don't get generalists without some special specialization. Some people are going to be more finance focused. Some people are going to be more people focused. And we, we leverage that across our system so that if we're working with a company and they need some assistance in this kind of specialized area, we have a coach that can, can come in and work side by side with their current coach on mm. that particular project. And you talk a lot about Rockefeller habits. So at mm. what age were you exposed to this idea of uh, Rockefeller habits and how did that change your way of doing business? Yeah, it's an easy answer. 2004 is when I met Vern Harnish, who wrote the book Rockefeller Habits. The original book is Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. And I went to a workshop. You asked me how I learned stuff. I went to a workshop. I took a couple team members with me. And I'm sitting in this room listening to him talk about this operating system. Like, you should be having these meetings and they should look like this. And this is what you should be doing quarterly. You should be looking at creating priorities for a 13-week sprint. I was like, okay, that's all great, man. Let's go do that because that sounds like something that's missing for me. And if I could get that done, then maybe my business wouldn't drive me nuts. Yes, the implementation of the Rockefeller habits in my own company in, from 2005 to 2008 was one of the greatest changes we ever made. So they're based in John D. Rockefeller's principles. And Vern, Vern... is a, is a master of bringing together thought leaders of different areas and putting them into kind of a single operating system. Mm. So that's what we work with as a basis. We, we, we say we're rooted in Rockefeller habits. So the work mm. that we do is based in the Rockefeller habits for sure. And you certainly, you, yeah, sure. I'll Go on. A, a bit of a, when, when I met Vern in 2004, our business was $75,000 US per FTE. So that's okay. how much gross margin we had as an organization per team member, per employee. Okay. Yeah. When we sold it in 2011, uh, we were at $275,000 per FTE. Wow. So, the, the, which, you know, just equates to a hell of a lot more profitability. So the right. impact of doing this methodology, when I say it's the greatest thing that we did, it's truly the greatest thing that we did. And was that because the productivity of the employees improved? Or they were able to make smart decisions or something? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a, it's a thousand things. So it's right. not like we can say, if you do curls in the gym, your bicep is what, it's not that exact. Yes, they were more productive. Yes, they were happier. Yes, the customer was able to give us feedback Yes, we were better to make make better decisions because of it. And there's a list of a thousand other things. Mm. And you're also a member of an entrepreneurship organization in Nashville. So when did you join that? 1997, when I sold that business in 99, 2000, and they didn't pay me. So I, I actually got out of the entrepreneur's organization for two years and then came back after that. Okay. So I, I got a two-year gap in there. From a member perspective, I explain it to people like this. They give you everything that you could ever want on a silver platter okay. for being better. And you still have to go reach up on that silver platter and get it. So they, their entire universe is about providing content and information, training. There's nothing that you can't find out by using the network, 
the systems, the tools, the learning, the webinars, the meetings, there's nothing that you can't get a hold of and you still have to go get a hold of it. Okay. And how do you become a member of that? Is that an invite only group or can anybody apply to be a member of that group? You have to, you have to have a, at least a million dollars in revenue, at least in the U S other countries and other uh, regions have different measurables, but you have to have at least a million dollars in revenue in the U S and then some level of employees too. And I don't remember the exact criteria there, but that's when you get into consideration, then you have to go through a a board vote and some other things that you have to do to get in. It's been a while since I, I mean, I used to run membership, but it's been a long time. And you also have this habit of reading at least for 10 minutes a day. Talk to us a bit about that. Every day, it's just, well, it's, it's exactly what you just said. Yeah. But I track all my daily activities in this little book. Okay. So, is that a journal that you write every single day? Yes, of course. So it, it's a journal that is a gratitude statement. And then each morning, it's, I do a stretching set. So stretch right. for 15 minutes, 50 sit-ups, 50 push-ups, connect with my wife, connect with my kids. Uh, 100 ounces of water, meditate for 10 minutes. I do a red light therapy for 10 minutes and then I read for 10 minutes. Wow. So it's literally, you know, can, all it is is stop, sit, read a book, 10 minutes and you're done. And sometimes 10 minutes turns into 45. I mean, it, but I, I, if I can just carve out 10 minutes, then that gets me through a bunch of books a year. And each of those things that you mentioned in the journal, they seem like to have a longer term impact on the quality of life that you are living. And at the same time, it increases your wisdom with things like reading books and keeps you healthy with things like exercising. So can you break those habits one by one and tell us why you do something, the mindset behind that, say, gratitude, then the other would be connecting with your family because you have that written down in your journal. Most people do that on a semi-automatic basis. They don't, they're not very purposeful about that. Yeah, I, I teach an actual class on this. Wow. Um, and and if, you, I mean, if you want to come to one of them, I'm, I'm happy to give you access to it. You can come anytime you want to. It's called Boundless Self. Wow. And I have an entire methodology. When we coach companies, what we have learned is every business has people in it. Mm. And people are like messy. I mean, people like- are just messy. So people need to get a handle on their messiness a little bit. And if we can help with that, then that automatically is going to have a positive impact on the organization. So a lot of this methodology came from, Hey man, we need to, we need, we need to get better ourselves and we need to help other individuals get better at an individual level. So we created what we call boundless self living a no try life. Okay. So it's an entire there's a two and a half hour class you can take online. There's a six and a half hour class you can take online. It's all live and you go through all the stuff. But the, the concept is where do you want to be in your life? Written. Mm. What do you got to do this year? Written. What do you got to do this month? Written. And what are the things if you do them every single day, you put yourself in a state of being so you can accomplish more. Wow. So you said physically fit, mentally fit, learner, got my you know, house stuff together. So right. that's kind of the, the idea is what are the things that if I do them every day, mm. I know if I stretch, 
I do my sit-ups, I do my push-ups, I exercise for 30 minutes, whether that's running or getting in the gym, sometimes it's both. I drink 100 ounces of water. If I meditate, if I do red light therapy, and if I read, if I you know, connect my wife and kids, if I do that, I can achieve more in the next 24-hour period than I could if I didn't do that. So I'm just going to put myself in a physical and mental better state if I can start doing a few things to get to get, and it's two hours worth of stuff every morning. Wow. So that, that sounds crazy to even say it out loud, but yeah, I spend two hours every morning doing the things that tee up my day for success. Now, and I didn't start there. I mean, I, I used to be the guy that got out of bed, took a shower, went to work. I mean, there was no get ready for work. I just took a shower, went to work. Now <laughs> yeah. it's all, I built all these things over a 10 year period of time into my life. Have you read Auto Atomic Habits by James Clear? Oh, sure. Yeah, because I think I listened to one of your interviews in which you were saying that it's important to read at least for, say, one minute or two minutes. If you're trying to get into a habit of reading, you need to pick up the book and read because that gets you into that habit of at least reading something every single day. And James Clear talks a lot about these triggers, like if you want to go to the gym and if you take a cab to that route every single day, so doing a push-up is not the actual trigger. The trigger is getting into a cab because automatically you reach it to the gym and then you will. So have you incorporated some of those principles into your own life? No, I don't do that. But I, okay. don't, I, don't, think, I don't think that I need that. Okay. So I think, or at least I tell myself this, hmm. that my willpower is strong enough that I don't need those triggers. Okay. Now that's not always been the case. I built, I think, you know, and again, I'm, this is, I don't know this to all be true, but I feel this way. So I, therefore right. I think if I want to go do it, I just get up and go do it. I don't need mm. a, I don't need a trigger to tell me to go do it. Yeah. Now, I have, a, I have, I think one of the greatest advantages over pretty much anybody else on the planet for this, because again, I teach this in a class. So I bring people together in groups and then I expose, here's how you go do it. And here's what I'm doing. So right. a part of this is an accountability to thousands and thousands and thousands of people every year. Yeah. Uh, Cause I have to go stand on the stage and tell them what to go do. <laughs> so maybe that's part of the trigger for me. Accountability uh, maybe. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. Mine is speaking to crowds. Somebody else's might be a cab. Somebody else might be a conversation with a friend. Somebody else might be a, right. a check mark on a wall. But, but we all need something. And the other thing I wanted to ask was, you have this, I'm not sure if it's a yearly thing, but you do go mountain climbing every once in a while. And yeah. you say that it's helpful to be competitive. So can you explain that thought process? Like it helps you be competitive in business in a lot of ways once you do something as tough as climbing a mountain. Yeah, I think it's uh, the way I usually describe it is doing hard things allows you to do hard things. Just like a balloon, you blow up a balloon, it never goes back to the exact same spot that it was before. If you press, if you press yourself to a place where you're mentally or physically like, oh, I just don't know if I can do it. And then you actually do it. Then you don't go back to the same. Your belief mm. system expands. Wow. So for, for me, and I do this in a lot of different areas, running is one of them. 
Yeah. But mountaineering and, and there's a, there's a series of mountains in the U S they call them 14 ers, which are just means they're 14,000 feet or higher. Okay. And there's 15 ers. And then there's, we have, we have like Denali at 23,000, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But we do these 14 ers. And I got a couple of friends that go, that I go do these things with and they're all classed. So they'll have, they're like class one is very easy. Class five is really, really hard. Yeah. And most of them are in the two to three. And then there's a few that are fours and fives. Mm. And some of them are, we did one in July that was, we left at 2.50 a.m. with headlamps. Wow. And we returned at 8.30 p.m. And that's, we got in a lightning storm and there was a lot of stuff going on. That oh, God. <laughs> but the thing was, I mean, that wasn't the hardest one I've ever done, but it was probably the second hardest one I've ever done. Mm. The first one I did. Okay. The first one was the hardest one. And it was just, it was just the hardest mountain there. It's just the toughest one to do. Okay. But the next, for a while, months, as something pops up and it's like, oh, that's hard. Not really, because you just did that damn mountain. Mm. <laughs> not that difficult. A few weeks ago, I signed up for this thing called Battle Miles, where you run, you put on a weight vest. So if you look at it like a military weight vest, yeah. um, usually they have for for bulletproofing but you, you can stick weights in it so i have a 20 pound weight vest that i'll put on okay i ran i did a half marathon with a 20 pound weight weight vest wow and i just did it because it was hard hmm. was like, why would you do that well because it's hard because <laughs> running a half marathon is hard and right. running it with 20 extra pounds hanging off your shoulders is harder so when i now go do another half marathon without the weight vest, easy. my mind will go, this shit's easy. And what are your favorite books? My favorite book of all time is a book called um, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh. Have you read that? I haven't read that, but I've heard its name so many times. I think I should add that to my reading list very soon. Yeah, I, read it. I read that book every year. It's a, it's a quick read. It's Viktor Frankl's story of survival okay. of of Auschwitz okay, and how no matter the situation that you, and Auschwitz obviously um, from a situation standpoint, but right. your, your mental attitude and how you think of something can get you through anything. Wow. And I just think that that we live in a world of, of victim mentality mm. Everybody wants to say, well, they didn't tell me that, or they didn't provide me that, or they didn't like, screw that. What did you do? And I'm very much a, let's, let's, let's make this 1% better. And if we all just would go do that, if everybody would just make themselves 1% better, I'll say it this way. If, if everybody would just pick the trash up on the street, when they walked by it, there would be no trash in the street. Wow. And any other books that you have that you say read every single year or you go back, you go back to them once um, in a while. I'll pull, I'll pull from my, you can't see it, but there's, this is, that's, these are red. Those are red over there. Okay. Uh, yeah. There's Victor Frankl's the one that I'm going to read every, every single year. And I may, between now and the end of the year, I'll, I'll do a complete reset of all my goals. So all my life goals get reset. They'll be mm. pushed out another year. 
obviously 2021. And then I'll, I'll restack. So I've got a small, I got a stack over here that I put my reading for the year. Okay. So between now and the end of the year, I'll pick 15 or 20 books and I'll put them over there to be read in 2021. Hmm. And then I'll just add to it as people send me books or tell me about books too. Interesting. And if you had to choose one person who you think according to your metric is probably the most successful person, or maybe that person defines success for you, who would that be? It's a tough, it's a tough question. I look at people, I look at myself in a, in a very kind of divided way. And right. if I can describe this a little bit. I see, I see a guy in Colorado on a hiking trail in a tent and I talked to him for a few minutes and he's like, yeah, man, I've been camping here all summer. I'm like, yeah. what have you been here all summer? Yeah, I've been here all summer. I've been in, I was in Aspen. Now I'm over here and I'm like, that's success wow. to be able to, he's got no cell phone. He's got no laptop. He's got no, wife. probably doesn't have any damn money. Right. He's just hanging out in a tent, totally content watching the sunrise, watching the sunset. So that's success. And then at the exact same time, I have, I have friends who have airplanes and, and big businesses and travel all over the world and do all kinds of really cool, crazy things. And right. I'm like, that's success. Mm. So it's hard for me to say an individual person is a reflection of success because I'm, right. I'm still, I'm still personally playing with it. I'm playing with, Every year I, I rewrite my goals. Every year I push out my life stuff. I'm playing around with what is my success? I'm, I'm not, I don't think I personally know the answer to that question yet. Right. And he asked this to Ani as well. How is the entrepreneurship scene in Nashville since you are a local there? You have been there for a few years. You're also a partner at an entrepreneurship organization. So, Yeah, Nashville is, is a hotbed, a, a great place for entrepreneurship. We have a relatively small population compared to a lot of the other um, larger cities in the U.S. We're right. um, a million, million, three maybe. And that entrepreneurs organization group that you talked about, I think we have the second largest chapter in the world. Wow. So when you compare us to New York City, you has maybe 250 members. Nashville has 220 members. Okay. So entrepreneurism in our town is really, really strong. Wow. Very interesting. Thank you, Andy, for doing this. And if somebody had listened to this interview and they wanted to connect with you, what would be the best place to do that? A couple places. I do a video series on Facebook. So Andy Bailey 01 is my right. personal Facebook page. And then Petra Coach, obviously, those videos will be on there and you guys can message me on Facebook. Yeah, um, or go to the website petracoach.com and there's a connect button on there and we can chat about anything you want to talk about. And if you had one advice for a young entrepreneur, maybe in their early to late 20s, what would that be? Yeah, I got asked this question once. They, they asked me from time to time to come and speak at the business school that I didn't graduate from and I have to <laughs> graduate. And somebody asked me that exact same question. There's about 150 people in the room and right. she's she was sitting in the front row and she said, Hey, what, what advice would you give to a young entrepreneur who's going to start a company? And I said, make sure it's profitable. Well, first I said, you're not going to like my answer because there's no fluff behind it. All right. In the startup world, everybody's like a billion dollar money losing unicorn. Well, 
Exactly. I said, make sure it's profitable. And she says, well, what about my passion and falling in love with my business? And I'm like, you can do that. And you can't do it for long if you're not profitable. So make whatever you used to ask me what the best advice was. The best advice would be find something to do that is profitable. And then second to that is make sure you like it. You put those two things together, then you can scale something that you love for a long period of time and make money doing it.